important. Jesus actually dealt with this issue quite a bit when he dealt with some of the Pharisees and some of the other people in his day. And so today will be a little bit different. We're going to have a conversation rather than a sermon. And we hope that you glean a lot from that, and we hope that you learn a lot from that conversation of how do we engage our own world. Today we've got somebody... um, great with us. It's, uh, Frini Prekumar is here with us today. Let me give you a little bit of his credentials to speak into this subject. He is a Christian apologist um, who uh, is not just, that does not mean, apologist does not mean somebody who just says, I'm sorry all the time, and is like really good at saying, hey, sorry for that. Sorry, I, sorry. I'm sorry. No, apologist is a defense this man knows how to give a defense of the faith, and, and he's actually a philosopher, and he's spoken at just some little schools around, um, you've probably never heard of them, Harvard, Yale, Berkeley, um, and we could go on. Started an, inter- an organization called Truth Matters International, and is now, um, we're lucky to have him today because he's normally on an airplane somewhere or flying around and, and, and speaking, and so we're really lucky to have Finney here with us today. Um, also, some of the work that he's doing is now going into local high schools, teaching high schoolers how to deal and handle with truth, which is an incredible thing to do because, as we know, the world more and more and more is going towards relative truth. And so how do high schoolers even deal and handle with this? And so um, we've got some questions that we're going to ask today that Finney and I have talked about, maybe some things that, that we're dealing with, the same format as some of our other conversations you've been to. I will um, ask him some questions, and uh, he'll answer those questions in the best possible way that he knows how. And then, you guys all have cell phones, right? Everybody's got those. It's a very easy tool. We've got a phone number. Would you pop that phone number up on the, on the screen? The second half of the conversation will be entirely your questions. Try and stump them. Ask anything you want. Um, I, I, went to, I, had, I went to lunch with Finney one day, and I was just blown away. I was sitting there writing notes as fast as I could. Um, because of some of the stuff we were talking about. And so if you have any questions, go ahead and text, and I will be able to get those questions in the second half of our conversation. Um, But right now, would you join with me in welcoming Finney Prekumar? All right, well, Finney already had a microphone, so that is good. Step one taken care of there. Well, Finney, before we get going on the questions, I covered a little bit about who you are. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, just give us a little, a little bit of the introduction there. Sure. Is it on? Yes. It's uh, truly wonderful to be here this morning, and I thank God for this opportunity and for Pastor Dave for his invitation. Uh, I was born in India. Uh, many, many years ago. I'll leave out the exact dates. But I was born in (laughs) India, and my dad was a missionary. And we moved to Singapore uh, after about 11 years after I was born. And he was a missionary pastor in Singapore. He helped establish churches in India and in Singapore among the Hindus and among the Buddhists. And then we moved here back in 1990 when my dad came to do his PhD program at Fuller Seminary. And he currently teaches at International Theological Seminary. And I went to Azusa Pacific, which uh, I'm sure all of you are familiar with. I'm a graduate of APU. Anybody? (laughs) And um, so after that, I worked in a software firm for some time. But I was working on some research on my own, uh, just working on different issues in theology, philosophy, and science. And I started, you know, sending out my papers to various uh, universities. And by God's grace, they got accepted and I started getting invitations to come and speak at what were academic conferences, but I came at it from a Christian perspective. And so it's just been wonderful traveling around the country, speaking at different colleges and universities, and also getting a chance to equip local members in those communities to be effective in reaching out to the people in those areas. And recently, God has opened up uh, opportunities in high schools to speak to uh, little, I mean, to young uh, boys and girls in high school, getting them equipped to be able to, you know, articulate the Christian faith and as they prepare for college to be prepared to go in as a Christian and to be an impact, a force within the universities that they attend. 
Great. And, you know, before we get started on some of the harder questions, let me just go ahead and pray for our time here. I meant to do that at the very beginning, but I was so excited to have you here. I I missed that. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that you would speak today. God, that we would hear from you. God, would you open our hearts and open our minds to be receptive to the words that you have? God, help us to hear from you. Lord, we need you. Just as the song said, we need you every hour. And God, we know the truth that you are right here among us. And so I pray that you would whisper into our ears the truth that we need for today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So, Finney, let's talk about the nature of truth a little bit. There's this push in our society to say, you know what? All roads lead to the same place. They, they sort of say, you know, nobody can really own truth. No one group. And so this Christians over here that say that you know the truth, I mean, that's pretty arrogant. And, um, and they're skeptical of any truth claim. Even, you know, Jesus' truth claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. So the first question I have is, why is this so offensive to the rest of the world that, that, you know, that we say, oh, Jesus is the truth? What do you think about that, the idea of it being offensive in that nature? Yeah, now let me come at it by way of an illustration. I remember hearing a story of, about a young fellow who didn't study well for his math exam. It was just before the holidays, before Christmas. And when he got the test papers, he didn't know any of the answers. And this is what he wrote. Dear teacher, God knows everything. I know nothing. Merry Christmas. <laughs> he got his test results back right, just a few days after the new year, and this is what his teacher wrote. Dear student, God gets all the credit. You get nothing. Happy New Year. <laughs> you know, in our search for the answers to the fundamental questions of life, and especially in our search for truth, we need to understand first and foremost that intent is prior to content. Intent is prior to content. George MacDonald once said, to give him truth who understands it not is to give him multiplied reasons for misinterpretation. To give him truth who understands it not is to give him multiplied reasons for misinterpretation. We see in the Gospels, Jesus talking to Pilate. He looks at Pilate in the Gospel of John and he says, I am here to testify to the truth. And he who is on the side of truth listens to me. He who is on the side of truth listens to me. And then as you keep reading, you see Pilate asking one of the most fundamental questions that any individual, any culture, any civilization, any society can ask, what is truth? What is truth? And then we see that he turned and walked away, almost in a casual, cavalier way. He asked, what is truth? And then he turned and walked away. When he walked away from Jesus, he walked away from the truth because Christ was the consummate embodiment of truth in the flesh. You see, before truth became propositional, truth was already personal. Before truth became propositional, truth was already personal because it is grounded in the personality of God himself. Secondly, truth is eternal. We read in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word who created all things and brought them into being became flesh and dwelt among us. We read in Isaiah, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The son was not born. The son who eternally pre-existed as a second person of the Trinity was given for your sake and mine. Truth is personal. Truth is eternal. And now truth has become propositional because this eternal personal God has made himself known to us in understandable terms. The personal the eternal and the propositional nature of truth. Why is it offensive? It's offensive because truth is exclusive. Why is it revolutionary? It's revolutionary because truth is also inclusive. Its exclusive nature makes it offensive. Its inclusive nature makes it revolutionary. What do I mean by that? Let me just briefly explain what I mean by that. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me, he immediately made a statement that made all contrary views false. He made a distinction between truth and falsehood. 
between day and night, between light and darkness, between what is spiritual and what is profane. And it's hard for a culture that constantly seeks to erase distinctions through redefinitions to accept the exclusivity of truth. We're constantly seeking to erase distinctions through redefinitions. Secondly, truth is all-inclusive. That famous verse that we all know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, whosoever believeth in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. For God, the greatest being, so loved the world, the greatest expression, that he gave his only begotten Son the greatest gift, that whosoever, whosoever believeth in him, the greatest invitation should not perish but have everlasting life, the greatest destiny that a person can have when he comes to know the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, regardless of who you may be, regardless of race, culture, creed, whatever your background might be. It is all-inclusive. It is available. The invitation is open to everyone. Amen. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you could say it better than that. That was wonderful. You know, one of the things that you said early on in that statement was that those who are on the side of truth, that's what, what Jesus said, those who are on the side of truth, and I never really thought about it that way, that if you're on the side of the truth or kind of already, ser- it, would you say already kind of searching for truth right. and looking for it right. will accept the truth. Right. And... I think we see that play out in our culture today so many times. We have people that just want to argue, and we have people that just want to be right, right. versus people who are actually genuinely seeking the truth. Wow, thank you for that. So let me ask you a question then. It would seem that there is absolute truth then in, in what you said. So our world likes to say, you know what, there's, there's truth here, there's truth here, there's truth here. I mean... Is, that, is there some truth in, in Islam, or is there some truth in other religions, or is it all kind of heaped up in Christianity? What, how do you see that? You know, when you talk about truth, we need to understand that any falsehood that might exist in the world, whether it's other religions, whether it's secularism, atheism, whatever it might be, whenever you add or subtract from the truth, you get falsehood. So there's always going to be a glimmer of truth in all the other religions or in other perspectives that are contrary to the Christian faith. But the Christian faith has the exclusive truth because truth ultimately is grounded in the person of Christ. Truth is absolute because it is grounded in an absolute person. It is not that we have searched for truth as Christians and finally at the end of the search we have found Christ to be the truth. No, he was at the beginning of the search. He was already there as the truth, as the eternal personal God, and he has revealed himself as the truth to us. So yes, in other religions, in Hinduism, in Islam, in Buddhism, in all the other religions of the world, even in atheism or secularism or nihilism, whatever it might be, there might be a glimmer of truth, but the salvific truth, the truth that provides salvation for your soul and mine, is found exclusively in and through Christ. Wow. And my next question was going to be, why does it matter? But I could see the answer to that question would be eternity. (laughs) I mean, so, but how would you state that? Because clearly you've thought through this a lot more than, than most people. So how, why does it matter if truth is, if all truth belongs to, to the person of Jesus, to God, why does it matter? G.K. Chesterton, the great English journalist once said, God is like the sun. You cannot look at it but without it, you cannot look at anything else. God is like the sun. You cannot look at it, but without it, you cannot look at anything else. The definitions for life and living flow from truth. The definitions for life and living flow from truth. And this is not just something that Christians are talking about. A secularist, atheist, some of the people who, are contra- who hold views contrary to the Christian faith have come to the conclusion that this is true. William Leckie, the great historian who was not a believer, wrote in his book The History of European Morals from Augustus to Charlemagne. And this is what he wrote. He wrote that the character of Jesus has not only the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its practice, and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that three short years of active life have done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and the exhortations of moralists. 
than all the disquisitions of philosophers and the exhortations of moralists. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, writes that when you see a ship out there on the high seas, there are three questions that need to be asked. First and foremost, how do you keep the ship from sinking? That's personal ethics. Secondly, how do you keep the ship from bumping into other ships? That's social ethics. But finally, and more importantly, the most fundamental question to ask is this. Why is the ship out there in the first place? Unless you have a definition for life and living, unless you're anchored to the truth, there is no definition for any other dimension of life. There is no other definition for any other dimension of life. And so truth matters because it matters in every facet, in every dimension, down through history, in every civilization. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. We see in the book of, um, I believe it's First Thessalonians, uh, to test everything, to hold on to the good. And built into following Jesus is this idea of testing. And we, we kind of need to ask questions of, is this right? Is this wrong? You know, is it, God, is this really from you? You know, what should our litmus test be? Because we are confronted. I tell you what, I had a conversation this morning with um, a guy in our church who works in a machine shop. And he said, yeah, all these different worldviews we've been talking about in church, they are all there in this machine shop, constantly, constantly prodding and pushing you to, to believe certain things. And I think that the world wants to say, wants to force us, our hand, into saying something's true. What is, what is our litmus test? How do we practically say, well, this is true or this isn't true? What do you think? Well, generally, if you pick up a book on apologetics or philosophy of religion or anything written by a Christian apologist, there are certain tests for truth that they'll talk about. Empirical adequacy, experiential relevance, you know, correspondence and in individual statements, coherence of the system as a whole, and so on. I do subscribe to a lot of these views, but I think that one of the most fundamental tests, one of the most fundamental things that you need to do is when you hear a particular system of thought, you need to get down to the foundations of what it is they're talking about. You need to get down to what I call first principles. Because we live in a cultural milieu in which religious language is, is abundant. You know, everybody talks about God. Everybody talks about salvation. Everybody talks about the afterlife. Everybody talks about satisfaction in life. You know, everybody talks about, you know, living life to the fullest. And so with all of these terms and concepts that are floating out there, how do you determine which ones are Christian or which ones can be endorsed by a Christian perspective? You need to get down to the foundations of what it is they're talking about. And many times when you get down to the foundations, you realize that they are speaking with borrowed capital. By that I mean that they're speaking from a Christian perspective, although they don't recognize it. I was at Ohio State uh, about two years ago, speaking there, giving a lecture, and uh, I went to the Wexner Center for the Arts. I don't know if any of you have heard of the Wexner Center for the Arts. It's actually considered by many to be the first uh, postmodern building in the U.S. So the guy who built it wanted the building to really reflect life. He basically... Uh, built a building that really makes no sense. Once you walk into the Wexner Center for the Arts, you see st uh, stairways that lead nowhere. In fact, if you walk up the stairways, it goes straight into a wall. And you see pillars that are built halfway. There are pillars hang dangling from the top, and there are pillars from the bottom up that stop halfway. And, and it's just an absolutely bizarre place to be in. I mean, it's mind-boggling. I took some pictures, and I came back and showed them to my family, and they couldn't believe it. I mean, this guy really wanted this building to reflect life. Absolutely no meaning, absolutely no, um, no direction, no, no teleos or purpose, whatever it might be. Life is just this meaningless pursuit, this meaningless movement of matter plus time plus chance. Now, someone was shown that building many years ago, and he said, you know, this guy wanted to reflect life and so on. And this person who was visiting Ohio State asked, did he do the same with the foundations? Did he do the same with the foundations? See, you can live life on the periphery. You can live life on the surface and endorse all that you want. But once you get down to the foundations, does the center really hold? Wow. And we need to look at these worldviews at the foundational level. 
not just at the basic concepts and ideas and belief systems that they have. Look at the foundational movements. Look at the foundations that undergird what it is they espouse, and then try to determine if it's true based on whether it is in alignment with the Word of God. One of the examples that I can give you is, for instance, coming from India, I see this everywhere, even in churches, unfortunately, people practicing yoga. You know, and I talk to a lot of Christians. I've been in churches where they've advertised yoga sessions, and people don't understand. They think that yoga has to do with, you know, good health and well-being and so on, and it does at the peripheral, at the surface level. But foundationally, fundamentally, yoga comes from Hinduism, one of the six dominant schools of Hindu philosophy. And the basic attempt when you practice yoga is to find union with God, to become one with God, to realize that you are divine, to realize that God lives in you as you, meaning that you yourself are God. You are not different from God. You are the Godhead, you are divine, you are one with God. So we need to understand these foundational elements of the beliefs that are espoused in our society. I thought I was just stretching. I mean, to be totally honest with you, I mean, really, I've, I thought, oh, they just, they just want to bend their legs up over their head or something. I, you know, wow, wow. That's, that's very, very interesting, Finney. Um, you know, what about this question that Christians always get asked? I mean, I, I could guarantee you if somebody here has had friends that aren't Christians and they all of a sudden get on the, the, the religion tangent at the dinner table, one of the questions that will come up is, hey, you know, you guys say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Fine. But what happens about people who've never even heard? I mean, African tribes of, of people who have uh, born and died for hundreds and hundreds of years without ever hearing the name Jesus. What happens to them? And um, a lot of times, as Christians, we sit there and we go, I don't know. That's for God to deal with. And that's sort of our answer because we don't really have a better answer. Um, how would you, de- I mean, because that's one of the ways that they say, well, see, I, I wouldn't serve a God that would just send those people to hell. I know we're getting on a little bit of a different issue now. What would you say to that? You're sitting at a dinner table, somebody asks you that question. Yeah, first and foremost, I think we need to affirm that there is no salvation outside of Christ, that Christ is our all in all. There is no salvation outside of Christ. That is what the scripture affirms. That is what Christ himself affirmed. And secondly, we know that God is a righteous judge. God is a righteous judge who knows, as I said earlier, the intentions of people. We look at the content of what it is they say, but God knows the intentions of the heart. And thirdly, God will not judge anyone unless he has given them the opportunity to respond to him. And God makes himself known not only through Christ, but also through his creation, And there is the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And God works in mysterious and wonderful ways. And thirdly, we know that the heart of man is wicked and is corrupted. And fourthly, we know that God himself will make that ultimate judgment, that God himself will rule for or against a person. And ultimately, there are only two types of people. C.S. Lewis, I believe in his book, The Great Divorce, writes there are actually two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. God does not condemn anyone. We condemn ourselves to live apart from him. And so God knows who will be in his presence, worshiping him for eternity. And he makes that ultimate judgment. And we can rest assured that the righteous judge will always make the right judgment. Wow. And so it's sort of like we, maybe we respond, well, you know, God is righteous. God judge, judges in a righteous way. And so we need to... Um, we need to uh, allow God to do that. Right. And I'm not the judge. God's the judge. So I don't know. Right. It's okay to say I don't know. Yeah. You know, one of the things I really want to point out, because one of the things I get asked whenever I speak at universities is, you know, there is this notion that a Christian should have comprehensive knowledge of every facet of life, every dimension of reality. We know some of the fundamental answers to life, but there are certain things that we ourselves struggle with. But based on Scripture, we can make certain deductions But it's okay to tell uh, a non-believer or someone who's searching for God that we are in this journey along with them and that we can use the Bible as a guide. So don't be ashamed to say that you are still learning because there is so much that is yet to be known. I mean, God's ways are, you know, higher than our ways. His thoughts far transcend what we can ever think or what we can ever, you know, conceptualize. 
So there's nothing wrong in saying that. And I think that's really the more authentic way of going, too. Instead of pretending we have all the answers, simply to say, I don't know, I'm still on this journey with you, and, and I'd be happy to walk down this road with you and try and figure this out. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, we need to kind of speed along a little bit. Um, California seems to be this religious buffet. I don't know if you sense that, but I travel around the country, and it's like, you're a Christian or you're not. I mean, it's, there's, there's like no other, maybe there's a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon temple or something, but you don't drive by and see a center for spiritual living, and um, you don't see the, you know, Muslim, um, uh, temp, like, uh, I'm trying to, my mind is blanking, but Muslim mosques. mosques, thank you. You don't drive by and see mosques. You don't drive around and see the different things that you see in California. And um, so really, there's so many religions and variations to truth. You know, one of the big things that's coming up now is spiritualism and new age. And one of the dangerous things, in my opinion, is that it's sort of starting to mix with Christianity. And we even had our very first person that we had a conversation with. um, He's a new age spiritualist guy, and he mixes it right in with Christianity. And I point out to him where I believe that he's wrong according to the Bible and all that. But it's just beginning to be mixed in, and they're starting to use the same words and, and, and things like that. So what are some tips on how, how do we deal with this? What is spiritualism in New Age, and how do we deal with it practically in our society? Well, it's not surprising that people are searching for spiritual encounters because that is ingrained in our very nature. St. Augustine once said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee because he has made us for himself. And so it's not at all you know, awkward to find that people all over the world, and especially in California, as you mentioned, you know, looking for these uh, experiences and so on. New Age and spiritualism, all of this Eastern stuff, came to the U.S. I really don't have time to go into all the details, but came to the U.S. back in 1893. The Parliament of World Religions that was held in Chicago And there was a guru, a Hindu guru, who came and went up to the podium uninvited and gave such a speech that there was a standing ovation that lasted for minutes. And he was immediately offered professorships at universities like Harvard and so on. And that's when it came to the U.S. And since then, you've had massive number of people come here, gurus from India and all over Asia come here and give lectures and talks and speeches on different aspects of uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and so on. And so out of that came the New Age movement. Uh, The New Age movement basically is uh, at its foundation. It draws its strength from one of the six dominant schools of Hinduism, which is called Advaita Vedanta. It's a school of non-dualism. So New Age draws its strength from that particular school. And the three affirmations of New Age is this. First and foremost, all is one. Secondly, all is divine. And thirdly, all is God. The technical term for it is pantheism. Pantheism, all is God. So these are the affirmations of New Age, and it's really taken root. And as you said, a lot of Christians, a lot of churches are beginning to even teach some of these doctrines. Very quickly, I think the church needs to regain. In order to be effective in this culture, in this climate, in this milieu, the church needs to retain and to regain its emphasis on doctrine. And secondly, the preaching needs to be expository. The emphasis on doctrine and the preaching that is expository. Go through the word and preach the word. Make sure that the people in the pew know the word inside out so that they can confront these counterfeit movements. And secondly, as Christians, Befriend these people. I still believe that it, when it comes to Asians, when it comes to people from an Eastern bent, the greatest form of evangelism is lifestyle evangelism. It's lifestyle evangelism. They're very relational people. They're not as argumentative. They're not as rational. They're very relational. Not that they're irrational, but they're more relational than they are rational. So relationship, lifestyle evangelism seems to be the most effective. You know, since Finney said um, expository preaching and emphasis on doctrine, you know, after going through this series, one of the things that God has really laid on my heart is the series through the book of Galatians. And um, just so you know, a little plug, in a few weeks we're going to do a little 
follow-up from this series, answer some unanswered questions that, that have sort of come up, and then we're going to start going through the book of Galatians together as a church. And so uh, we're going to dig into that because that was the question really there is, is doctrine and, um, and really understanding what the Word of God was. And also, um, you know, you started bringing this up. We're going to skip over, well, you know what? No, we'll do this. The law of attraction. This is something that's huge. This is very practical. We see this all the time. How many of you have ever seen or read the book, The Secret? Anybody? A few of you? Yeah, okay. This, so many of you have maybe have never heard of it. If you, I swear, I promise, if you see the, the, the logo, The Secret, you'd understand what I'm talking about. This is the law of attraction. And let me just give you a real fundamental basics on that. If you think like a millionaire, you'll attract millionaires. And if you attract millionaires, then you'll become a millionaire. Right? What's wrong with that? I'm kidding. I, um, I know what's wrong with that. But this is something that's creeping into the business world, to the church. It's creeping into a lot of different things. What is the law of attraction? How do we deal with this? See, the law of attraction can also be the, called the law of affinity. Law of affinity. And basically what it does is the problem with it from a Christian perspective is that it situates the source and the reality of what can happen in a person's life in the person in the autonomous individual. The Bible tells us to think thoughts that are pure, thoughts that are righteous and just. The Bible is concerned about the right thoughts, but first and foremost, it's concerned about the relationship with the right person, out of which comes the right thoughts. It is not situated in you. This is a secularized version of what we find in Scripture. Think the right thoughts, but let the source, let the foundation be you. Let it be situated in you. So this is another way of being autonomous, being the master of your own fate. You can think the right thoughts and really move yourself up in, in the business world or whatever it might be, whatever arena you're involved with, but everything ultimately finds its source in you. Hmm. Rather than in God. Right. It's just that little twist that, right. that we, it sort of takes us yeah. you know, by surprise because we, that little twist is something we don't necessarily see. So it sounds good. Right. It is good to think good thoughts. Yeah. But then there's that twist to it. Thank you. Um, and then karma. You and I talked a lot about karma. Karma is something that is just, you know, instant karma is going to get you. Uh, it's all over popular culture. It's all over world. You know, people say this without even thinking what this is. Help us to understand karma. Yeah. Karma basically means, in a very simple way, the law of action. I mean, it's actually a very moral law. We see it in the Bible. What you sow, you will reap. It's a physical law. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Karma basically says, whatever you sow, you must reap. The only problem is that karma is an absolute law. So what you sow, you must reap. That is why karma necessitates the possibility and the reality of reincarnation. Because you keep sowing and reaping in this life, but your life comes to an end before you reap all the consequences of your actions. So you have to come back in another life. Guess what? You produce more actions that you haven't reaped, and you keep coming back over you know, multiple lives. So karma really necessitates and makes possible reincarnation. So karma basically says, whatever you sow, you and you alone must reap. Hmm. So, so it's an absolute law. It, it dominates people's worldview. And that's something we don't understand in America. Is we, we hear it as like, oh, good karma or bad karma. Oh, yeah, you're, you know, you're going to get it because of karma. And, and we don't understand how much that dominates somebody's mind from an Eastern worldview. Yeah. Um, so how do we engage? You've t- been telling me that you and your father have had a lot of success engaging Buddhists and Hindus and, and, and people from the worldview of karma. How do you engage them for Christ? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, you know, trying to explain to them that, uh, you know, first of all, we need to accept that karma is a real law. It's a law of nature. It's a biblical law. What you sow, you must reap. But what they forget is that what you sow, others also reap. And what others sow, you also reap. If I go and murder someone, if I steal from someone, they reap the consequences of my sin. I'm not the only one reaping it. If that is true, then I can sow into your life, and you can reap the results, and you can sow into my life, and I can reap the results. So when you explain what Christ has done on the cross, explain to them by way of karma. Christ took your karma and the consequences of your karma. He was made sin for you 
upon the cross. And then you reaped the consequences of his karma, the righteousness that he sowed into human history. And now you can be reconciled to him. That makes a lot of sense to them because karma has to be taken care of. If you just go and tell them to close their eyes and to accept Christ, the question in their mind still is, but my karma needs to be taken care of. But you need to explain to them that the karma was nailed to the cross. All the sin and the consequences of sin, once and for all, so that you don't need to come back in a cycle of rebirths. It has been nailed to the cross. Christ took your karma and died in your place, and he reaped the consequences of your sin and mine, our karma on the cross, and transferred his righteousness to us. They need to understand that karma has been taken care of because karma is the absolute law. Even within the Christian faith, we need to understand that in the context of justice, love cannot redeem without a sacrifice. In the context of justice, love cannot redeem without a sacrifice. We often talk about the love of God, but we forget that God is also a God of justice. God is also a God of wrath. We need to talk about all the attributes of God. If we have a little bit of time, I just want to give them the sure. illustration. Please do. There's an illustration of Ishmael, a, favorite, a famous king who lived many centuries ago. My dad often talks about this. And Ishmael was very, very concerned that there was a lot of uh, um, you know, uh, corrupt things going on in his kingdom. And people were bribing others in order to get things done. So he wanted to put a stop to it. So he said that anyone caught in the act of bribery will be given a hundred lashes. Anybody caught in the act of bribery will be given a hundred lashes. He turns around uh, the next day, and they, they bring someone to him who's been caught in bribery, and he turns around and sees his own mother standing there. His mother had been caught in bribery. Everyone is waiting to see what he would do. They're all waiting for his judgment. He looks at them and he says, carry on with the punishment. They put his old mother on a slab, and they began to strike her. After about three blows, she's almost dead. She can barely take it. She's bleeding. She's about to die. Ishmael says, stop. He goes over to his mom, moves her away from the slab, and puts himself on the slab, and he says, continue. Continue with the rest of the 97 strikes. Those who were there said two things about him that day. How loving, how just. Love redeems in the context of justice by sacrificing itself. And Christ sacrificed himself and sowed in human history, did what we could not do on the cross. Is salvation by works or by faith? It is by works. Salvation is by works. Faith in the work of Christ. The work had to be done. We could not do the work, and he did the work that we could not do. And we have faith in the work that he has done upon the cross. Thank you. That was a very good explanation of all that. And I do want to say we are recording the audio of this. Um, Some of you may think, wow, I need to go back and re-listen to some of this to really get it, because some of the things he's saying is really deep, and we need to do that. We're going to take a little uh, break because we have things that we normally do in church, like pray, and, and um, we have an offering, and so feel free to continue to hang out here, but we're actually going to do, um, have a time of offering right now. And One of the things, since we do have another congregation here with us today, we have envelopes, um, and what we'd really like you to do, and we want to stress this, if you're here and you're with Abba Love today and you're giving your offering to Abba Love, there's pens. Please write nice and bold on that envelope, Abba Love. Any loose cash, we won't know what to do with. And so we ask that everybody put something in an envelope today if you're, if you're giving um, uh, to the church this morning. And so um, we ask that you would go ahead and do that. And um, just so you know, we're on the second week of a new fiscal year of our church, and uh, we've got some goals to uh, pay down debt. We've got some goals to uh, improve the property and some goals to really reach out for some, um, reach out to some new people um, and, and really reach some people for Christ. And that all happens through resourcing, and, uh, and that's one of the things you do through giving and generosity. So we thank you for that. Let's pray. Father, Right now, as we give and as we um, give to you, Lord, we recognize and realize that you made all things, including our jobs, including our bosses, that you made all things. And God, you have given us, you truly have given us our resources. God, that they are not ours to begin with. And so out of an act of worship to you, we simply give back what you've already given to us. 
We ask that you would bless it for the ministry of this church. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So before we get into our time of family prayer, um, we have some new ministries that have been starting, and um, even Abba Love, we want to invite you to be a part of this. So we, we're, we're good friends, NCF and Abba Love, and so we want to invite you to anything, and we want to be able to come crash whatever you're doing as well. And so Marlia, I'd like to give you a second here. Good morning. Are you guys loving this as much as I am? This is amazing. I mean, off the hook. Okay. So um, in your bulletins, you're going to find an invitation to um, the Rooted Women's Ministry, which is a new ministry that we're starting up at NCF. And um, it's to women um, of any age past high school graduation. Um, But the invitation is specifically for an event for our mystery dinner, which is coming up on June 28th, and it's going to be held right here in the sanctuary. And we want to make sure that everybody knows about it and that everybody is um, able to come. And so it's going to be a super fun night of um, a Roaring Twenties theme. We're going to be dressing up either in costume or elegantly. We're going to have a great dinner. And even more, we're going to see a mystery play um, in the middle of it. It's only $20, and that includes like a three-course meal and all the fun you can have. Um, And just the opportunity to build community with the ladies, not only in this church, Ava Love, the Spanish congregation, and women in the community whether they belong to this church or not. And that's really our goal is, as the Rooted Women's Ministry is to build um, a place where women can come and be together and be real. That's the goal, to be real together, okay? So make sure that if you are interested in this, that you talk with either myself or Desiree Burton uh, Johnson. Johnson. John, yeah, I got the Johnson in there. It's almost been seven years. I, well, you know. I knew her way back when. Yeah. So Desiree Johnson, we're going to be out at the table that we set up out here. We're going to be selling tickets. This is a great time um, or great event to bring friends um, and family to that may not know God um, and give them an opportunity to see Christians living life um, relationally. Um, So again, questions, meet us out there, but we'd love to have you all attend um, and just have a really good evening and time together. We're also going to be letting you know about some other events that we have coming up and uh, the really exciting launch of our fall ministry as well. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Yeah, don't worry. I was doing family prayer a couple weeks ago and I called Madalena Mata, Madalena Reyes. Um, It's it's something that's hardwired, those maiden names sometimes. Um, I want to invite Pastor Christian up. Uh, many of you know Pastor Mike, and some of you know Pastor Christian, but uh, Christian is um, a pastor with Abba Love, and uh, one of the things we wanted to do is uh, pray for each other's ministries today. And we have a few prayer requests from our church, but we wanted to, to do that as well. Christian, why don't you say hello? Hi. Now that you know Christian, <laughs> tell, give us a little update about Abba Love and all that's going on, and, and you guys are doing some great work. Um, thank you for inviting us to listen to the truth, <laughs> and um, we're really excited to be part of it. We're sorry that not a, um, much of our people can come, because uh, we have a wedding at 2 o'clock, and so a lot of our congregation are part of that. Um, God's been doing a lot of great things also in our congregation. Um, we've been given a lot of opportunity to serve the city. Um, we're doing a lot of community events, and so please keep us in prayer. Um, we're just so excited to, for opportunities to disciple people and just love on our city. 
So. What's amazing is through their cell groups, they're really just praying about that God would give them opportunity to serve the city, and it's happening in spades. It's, it's really quite incredible to, to have an office across the way and to hear them rejoice about what's happening. It's, it's, it's really fun to be neighbors with all the love, and so I'm, I'm glad we're, we're good uh, partners there. So um, why don't we stand with each other and, and tell you what, if you are um, a neighbor with an Abba Love person, would you just sort of uh, lay a hand on them? And if, and if Abba Love, you're a neighbor with an NCF person, would you just sort of lay a hand on them? And um, Christian, why don't you pray for us and we'll pray for you. All right, let's do that. Mm-hmm. Father God, we just thank you for the expression of the body of Christ this morning. We just want to praise you and worship you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here with us. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters at NCF. We thank you so much, Lord, for the things that you are working to this um, wonderful congregation in the city, Lord. God, we pray for wisdom and uh, just enlightenment, Lord Jesus, for for, um, your will through this congregation for the city. And also, Lord, with this awkward conversation and and everything that you've been doing through NCF, we pray, Lord, that you um, continue the good work, Lord Jesus, that you're, you're doing here. We pray that um, every single person, Lord, will be a bold witness for you wherever they are, that they can use their occupation to serve you, to love on people. Pray for Pastor Dave and the team and the staff, Lord Jesus, that they continue to serve you. Um, encourage them, Lord, lift, lift up their hearts when, uh, when things are hard. Uh, we know that you're so faithful and you never leave us. And so we thank you for this partnership, for this friendship, for this family relationship we have with one another. We just lift you up this morning. We thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you this morning that we're not two churches standing here, but God, that we're united in your spirit. That this is one body. We may meet at different times, but God, this is one body, one expression. So God, we pray that um, you would bless our friends at Abba Love. God, would you give them, continue to give them vision for the city? God, would you continue to give them opportunities to serve and to reach others? And God, would you expand their influence so that other people would come to know you in more profound ways? God, we thank you for Pastor Mike and Pastor Chris, and we just simply ask that you would bless them as well. God, that you would give them rest where it's needed. And God, that you would continue to push and to drive our congregations. God, you are the center of this place. You are the center of our lives. And we simply ask that you would continue to move and that your Holy Spirit would move and guide and lead each one of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Thanks. Um, And we do want to pray for, a, a, there's just a, been a couple of things that have been brought to our attention from our congregation, so would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, um, we pray for Marion Peter today. Lord, as she has fallen ill, we ask that you would be with her. God, that you would um, take her sickness away. God, that your hand would be on her and anoint her. Father, we continue to pray for Caleb Mata. We just ask that you would continue to heal him and bring him back to full health. And God, for the whole family that is dealing with health issues, we just pray that you would really touch each one of them and anoint them. Father, um, I just pray for Cheryl Tombo's mom. Lord, we ask that uh, you would be with her. God, that you would comfort her. Father, we continue to pray for Myrtle and ask that you would be with her as well. Jesus, for our church, God, we give ourselves to you. God, we are your very loved creations. Lord, I pray that you help us to act in that way in this world. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things we thought early on is everybody might need a little bit of a mental break in order to absorb all of this, and I know I certainly do, but um, can, you, can we put that text message number back up on the screen? We do have a couple of questions. Whoops. We, I keep pressing the wrong one. There we go. We have a couple of questions. Um, you could text yourself a question if you're curious. <laughs> Funny. Um, <laughs> you have a burning question. And keep in mind, it doesn't necessarily have to be on this topic, but we are watching the time. Um, so... If you have any burning questions, feel free to text. Um, I get it through an app on my phone here. So, and that's not my phone number, but uh, you know, if you ever need to get a hold of me, you could 
I'll see your text message there. Question, how do we have a conversation with another faith who accuses us of not really having one God? They look at our Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as three gods, not just one God. So how do you, this is obviously Trinitarian heresy, how do you deal with this? Yeah, I'll try to be as brief and as clear as possible because I'm also watching the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, this is a question that has plagued uh, Christians for many, many years. It's, it's not new. Uh, it might come in new forms and new expressions, but this is something that the church has had to deal with. And it results, actually, but before I say anything, you know, when we talk about the Trinity and some of these lofty concepts and ideas in the Bible, we need to be very careful, even as Christians, because sometimes the longer the answer, the greater the possibility of heresy. So we need to be very, very careful on some of these things, and we need it to be guided by the Holy Spirit and through much prayer. Uh, then we can dialogue with people in very meaningful ways. One of the ways in which this has become a problem or an issue is a misunderstanding that has crept even into the church. God is not three beings. He is one being but three persons. Let me quickly illustrate this as, uh, as uh, clearly as I can. I am one being and one person. My being, I'm a human being. That's my ontology. That's a technical term that is used in theology and philosophy. But within this being, I, I'm housed as one person. Okay, I'm one person and one being. God in his being has three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is not contradictory, to have three persons and one being. The only question is, can that complexity exist? The problem is not if the complexity is rational or logical, but if that complexity can exist. And there is a glimmer of truth in, in what science tells us now. You know, if you look at uh, theories like quantum theory and M-theory that they've recently come out with, they talk about 12 and 13 dimensions that we can know of, that we can theorize about. And C.S. Lewis is very useful here. In talking about the Trinity, he said, you know, in levels of higher complexities, things that were seemingly contradictory at lower levels are reconciled. This is what he means. He gives a very useful uh, example. He says in two dimensions, if you bring a circle and a triangle together, can they coexist in two dimensions? If you draw, draw out a circle and a triangle, can you ever put them together? Can they coexist? But in three dimensions, they can. How do they coexist in three dimensions? Can anyone shout out the answer? In a cone. As you move up the dimensions, what are seemingly irreconcilable and seemingly apparently contradictory become reconciled. And that is what happens with the Trinity. There is no contradiction in saying that there are three persons in one being. If you say that there are three beings in one person, it becomes impossible because it's logically contradictory. But three persons in one being is absolutely possible and actual in the person of the Trinity. Again, thank you. Um, Somebody shouted out a cone, and I was thinking, no, I have no idea how they (laughs) they go together. But that's a really interesting way to attack that. Um, another question. Does truth demand everyone confront Christ? Yes. At some point in your life, um, and we talked about people who had never heard of Christ, mm-hmm. whether knowingly or unknowingly, whether you've been told explicitly about Christ or not, by a missionary or not, whatever it might be, whenever you, whenever you confront the truth, you're confronting Christ because there is no truth apart from him. The problem is not whether we can confront Christ. The problem is whether we can accept him, because with him comes submission. And that's something that we never talk about. And that is what people are usually afraid of. In a culture that basically elevates autonomy at the expense of everything else, submission becomes a problem, Hmm. because God provides a blueprint for life. And this is not just a problem outside the church. It's also a problem inside the church. Do we really confront Christ inside the church? Let me take the example of worship. We've reduced worship to mere expression. The expressions of what we feel come out in worship. But what about the submissions of all that we are? Worship is also a time of submission. Only when we submit to Christ in worship during our Christian life, during Christian church, during Christian service, when we gather together, can we confront a world and ask them to submit to this Christ? And it all begins with worship, because ultimately your life and mine is a coextension of worship. 
Do we really just express all that we are, all that we feel, or do we submit all that we are? Let me just give you a beautiful quote by Archbishop William Temple, who wrote about worship, a wonderful man of God. He said, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind by his truth, the purifying of the imagination by his beauty, the opening of heart to his love, and the submission of will to his purposes. All of this gathered up in adoration is the greatest expression of which we as human beings are capable. Yes, you will confront Christ. If you're truly seeking the truth, you will confront Christ because apart from him, there is no truth. And when you find him, are you willing to submit yourself to him? Amen. Amen. Let me ask another question. There are many people here today who know the truth. We know that Jesus has saved us. We know that um, God is God. We know that Jesus is God. We know that the Holy Spirit still lives and moves in this world today. What is our responsibility? What are we responsible for? In the Gospels, you see a crowd gathering um, when Jesus is standing there, and one of them asks him, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And unfortunately, Jesus says, yes, I wish he had said no. (laughs) But uh, they ask him, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, give me a coin. And then he says, whose image do you see on the coin? They say Caesar's. And Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said there should have been a follow-up question. That man should have asked, what should we render unto God? And Jesus would have said, whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? Render yourself unto God. The very image of God is in you and me. And we render ourselves to him in everything that we are, in everything that we do, in everything that we ever hope to become. And that is when we become those who really reflect his glory and his splendor in a world that desperately needs to know him for who he is. Wow. So you're to reflect God's image back to the world. I mean, really, the responsibility, truth comes with some responsibility. Truth comes with some of it. I mean, we're going to be held responsible. I really believe that, you know, God as the righteous judge will say, hey, you know, you know truth. What did you do with it? How did you handle it? Um, we are kind of coming to a point where we need to wrap this up. Um, can we thank Finney for being here today? Finney, go ahead. Yeah, you know, sometimes when we have these discussions and we talk about some of the things that are going on in culture, it's not unnatural to feel somehow let down and somehow feel negative because there is so much going on out there. And sometimes as Christians, we feel like we're being strangled and we're trying to, you know, uh, meet the world at its challenges and trying to live out the Christian faith. And it's a struggle for you and for me and especially for churches in this day and age in which we live. But I want you to take hope. I want you to take courage today as you leave. And I want you to leave with the words that King George spoke to a nation that was in distress. That was in distress. And the situation that they found themselves in was not different uh, from the situation in which we find ourselves today. And this is what he said. I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light so that I may tread safely into the unknown. The man at the gate of the year replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God and it shall be to you better than the light and safer than any known way. And so I say to you, go out into the darkness, put your hand in the hand of God and he will guide you and he will make himself known in and through you. God bless you. Thank you. As John and the band come up, maybe there's some of you here today who simply would need to say, wow, that's me. I need to put my hand on that. I can't just have an artificial light. I need to put my hand on the hand of God. I was thinking as he was talking about Jesus' statement about building your house on the rock. Maybe you're here today and you're like, man, my house is just on some shaky ground. I hear all that he's saying and I'm like, man, I just need to figure out what I believe. I need to search for the truth. 
and I need to see God move in my life. Maybe you're here today and you simply say, need to say, God, I just need to, to reach out and, and to, to grab you. I need you to lead me. I mean, if you're here today, would you, would you simply raise your hand and just simply reach out and say, God, that is me. I need you to lead me in this because this journey is, is scary and, and I don't know what to do. I need to know your truth. Let's pray. Father, as we reach out to you, we simply say, God, you are our truth. You are the life. God, your claim to be the only way. God, your claim to be the truth is so great that sometimes we can hardly comprehend it. But, but Lord, we know that your mercy and your grace is so great that we also can hardly comprehend it. Lord, I pray that you would guide and lead us in all truth today so that we might glorify your name, so that others might come to know you in powerful ways. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we worship?